Grace to you and peace from God the Father, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So during this Lenten season, I've taken the opportunity to work our way through um, sections and chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We took a long look at some of the events um, in Luke um, that he includes in chapter 4 a couple weeks ago. Last Sunday, we dabbled into chapter 7. So if you want to do some reading at home and talk about uh, amongst yourselves what we're doing um, during the services, chapter 4 of Luke and chapter 7 of Luke are excellent places to start. So uh, we're going to talk about uh, chapter 7 tonight, uh, a rather unique and rather surprising event that takes place. Uh, Before we do, could we just pray again? I just kind of feel like resetting the tablet here a little bit. So Lord God, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace and your wisdom. Pray that your words are spoken from this uh, pulpit tonight um, and go directly into our ears again to change us to who we are. Uh, Help us understand your words. Help us understand your attributes. Help us understand more about you so that it strengthens our faith, especially here during this Lenten season when that's what we're focused on. So thank you again, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to hear your words. So I'm going to jump right into it, um, uh, as we always do. But actually, before we get into it, I want to kind of frame um, what's happening here, where it's happening. So let's look at, we have the map real quick, um, Jared. Um, So Jesus is coming back down into Capernaum. Um, He's coming down from the mountain, I'm going to tell you that in a second, kind of from the the north and the east. Um, That's right where Jared's got the little arrow going there. And he's heading his way back into Capernaum. Okay, so um, I I just like to do that because um, I think looking at maps kind of helps us um, have a little bit of a mental image in our head. And then if we look at them enough, we kind of get to recognize them uh, the same as we do with uh, maps of any place we're traveling. So that's where we're traveling to tonight. So here we go. Luke 7, um, verse 1. It says, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Great, right? Okay, so that verse right there should bring up a couple of questions in your mind. Maybe even out loud. Well, who's he for beginners, right? He's Jesus, right? Okay, and he comes down, completed all his discourse. My second question is, what is a discourse? A discourse is kind of a a teaching. Is in, like in college, did you take discourse? I will be in town all week. Specifically, this is, it took a little second to get that one. Uh, Specifically, this is talking about the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is coming from the Sermon on the Mount, and he's coming back into Capernaum. And then on his way, some crazy things happen here. Um, So um, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, about uh, about that Sermon on the Mount. But um, he's heading to Capernaum. uh, Capernaum is his adopted home. Now, he's now no longer based in Nazareth because they kind of kicked him out. He goes back there a little bit later, but that's just for a cup of coffee. But he's really um, basing himself in Capernaum. And then, true to Luke's style of writing, and like I've said, I really like Luke's gospel. Maybe you shy away from it a little bit because it's the longest gospel, but he really gives some incredible detail. He's got an incredible style of writing. Um, but in, like I said, true to form in Luke's gospel, we get the dilemma right away. So look at verse 2, the problem or the dilemma. It says, In Capernaum there was an army officer. He had a servant who was very sick, or, and he was near death. The officer loved the servant very much. Okay, now, in this historical account, um, there's plot twist after plot twist. Almost every verse gives us a new plot twist. So the first one's right here. Uh, first, we have an army officer. Um, uh, maybe a better translation for this is uh, a centurion. But then we've got to explain what a centurion is. He's an army officer, Roman army officer, part of the Roman army, um, in charge of a hundred men, thus the name centurion, just like a century is a hundred years, a centurion is in charge of a hundred people, hundred men. 
Um, they were appointed, the centurions were appointed uh, from among their ranks. They were promoted uh, by virtue of their, their bravery, their loyalty, their character, um, their prowess in battle. Um, centurions, however, were expected to fight right alongside and right in the formation. In fact, um, their position was to the left of the first line of the formation. So um, sometimes they didn't last very long either, depending on how many times um, they went into battle. But all of that put together made them in, very influential in that society, in their society. Now, strangely enough, the Bible mentions several different um, centurions, or different, he, they mention centurions several different times. We don't know if they're different ones or not, to be honest with you. Um, but every time that they talk about them, it's in a positive light. Um, it's a centurion that's at the foot of the cross that says, surely this was the Son of God, and then on and on like that. It was, so, so, okay, so now he has a request. Right, he makes he doesn't uh, make this request on his own. Right, he's he's got um, he's got Jesus, he's got the Jews, and they have this incredible faith. So um, the, he asks the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the elders, is how it reads in NASB, to go and make that request for him, to go to Jesus and say, "My son, my slave is sick. The slave whom I love is sick." Again, that's pretty crazy stuff to have that in the beginning. So they, they went to him and they asked um, Jesus to go and, and to help uh, this, this situation. And Jesus says he's going to do it. Now, the second um, plot twist here is about how this man loved his slave, his servant, which was just crazy back in those days because um, slaves were not um, endearing people. Aristotle described a slave as a living tool. A living tool. The, the legal scholar Gaius pointed out that masters had the power of life and death over a slave. So they, they could decide if that slave, if they didn't like what he was doing or what they were doing, they could get rid of him. And nobody asked any questions any more than if you were getting rid of a, of a chicken or something like that. The Roman historian Varro said this. It's almost like a joke. He said, the difference between a slave, an animal, and a cart is that the slave could talk. They're all three in the same category. A slave, an animal, and, and the cart that pulls things along are all in the same category, except that the slave... That's how they were on the, on, the, on the totem pole there. But this slave is loved. So the centurion hears about this guy named Jesus. I mean, think about how many times in the Bible, and we really stop and we've looked at that three different times in the last several weeks, how when Jesus was preaching someplace, um, the entire region heard about him. News about him spread over the entire region. We see that time and time again. So this guy heard about Jesus somehow. Um, as The reason I showed you on the map where Jesus was coming from in the Sermon on the Mount is because it was right there. There's a good chance that this centurion actually heard Jesus speaking and actually started to understand who he was because he heard him firsthand. But he doesn't go right up to Jesus. Again, he calls on some figures, um, uh, some people that he, he figures that they know that Jesus is the Messiah, right? These are the Jewish leaders. They're supposed to be looking out for the Messiah. And even this little knowledge that the centurion has, he's like, this is the guy. This is one that we should be looking for. This is the one that has all this power. So this guy is, the centurion is powerful, yet he's humble. He says, I don't, I don't have the, the right, I, I'm, I'm not worthy to go talk to Jesus myself, but maybe you guys would go talk to him for me. And the fact that these Jewish leaders are willing to do this for this, what we would call this Gentile, they're willing to do that, really puts this guy in another category. We're going to see that in a second. So the Jewish leaders, like I was saying, um, they hated everything about Rome. Rome hated everything about the Jewish leaders, but some, for some reason they're really willing to go to bat for this guy. And that had to put those Jewish leaders in a conundrum. 
Because they're denying that Jesus is the Messiah. They're denying that Jesus can do and is doing all these things that he's doing. And yet, now they're going on this guy's behalf, going and ask him to heal this son, which they know he can do and this guy knows he can do. So they're basically admitting that Jesus is who he says he is. But true to the Jewish um, elders, the Jewish leaders' form, um, you've you got to look at their backwards reasoning. Uh, verse 4 says this. They, that's the Jewish leaders, approached Jesus, and listen to this now, hear the language, strongly urged him to come, saying, he deserves to have you do this for him. Right? Ah, as if we owe, God owes us something, right? Typical Pharisee fashion, they think we can earn everything from God. They're basically saying that Jesus owes it to this guy to go and help him out, do what he wants to do. And then they reason with Jesus, verse 5. Uh, this centurion loves our people. It is he who built our synagogue for us. You know, we owe him a solid. We need you to go and do this for us. These guys are basically saying he is worthy. The centurion is saying, I am not worthy to even be in the same room with you, let alone have you do something for me like this. But nevertheless, even aside from, from the, the Jewish leader's reasoning, uh, nevertheless, Jesus goes, right? He goes to this guy's house, or is heading for this guy's house, to heal his, his slave, to heal his beloved servant. And then there's another plot twist just here in these next few verses. Um, the guy reconsiders um, what he's asking Jesus to do, because basically they're saying, go to his house and heal um, this servant. He reconsiders, you know, halfway through this idea, thinks better of it. So he sends some friends to intercept Jesus. Jesus is almost to the house. He sends some friends to intercept him and says, um, you know, um, I'm not worthy for you to come. And then he's, that's when he says this, these incredible words. He says, uh, if you just say the word, right, you don't, have to, you don't have to be there. If you just say the word, right? And he says um, in verse 8, I'm also a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, he does that. The centurion understands that Jesus has that power, and Jesus has that authority. He says, I have it here on this earth, which is very limited and really amounts to nothing, but you've got some power and some authority that really means everything. He acknowledges, he, is, he admits that Jesus has that power and that authority, and that really got to Jesus. And he says some words that Jesus emphasizes um, as an example to all. You know, um, in, in verse, uh, part of verse 7, um, he said, just say the word. Just, just say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. You don't have to be there. You don't have to come. I know how people are. I know how these are going to handle your orders. I know they're going to obey you. Just say the word. Now, maybe this guy is already a follower of God, because there's some verses that really back this up. He, maybe he's already a follower of God. They said that the Jewish leader said that he was instrumental in, uh, in basically giving him credit for the fact that there is a synagogue in Capernaum, which is saying something rather huge. That's a big, a big city and it's a big synagogue that was there. Maybe he's attended some of the teaching that went on there. We don't know all these details, but we can only just kind of try to fill in some blanks. But maybe, and I was thinking this morning, maybe he's heard some of the Psalms. Maybe he's heard some Psalms read, and maybe he's read this one right here, verse one, or Psalm 107, verse 20. It says, he sent out his word and healed them, snatching them from the door of death. Now, I'm not sure if we count this as one of the prophecies that, that Jesus fulfilled, but man, you know, things are all connected. I was teaching that to our Club 56 on, on Sunday. We were looking at some Old Testament um, verses. We were looking at some New Testament verses. 
And this is a lesson for all of us. Sometimes we separate the two. Sometimes we, we put them in little pockets and little pigeonholes and little mailboxes. But once we start understanding that all these things start to work, are working together, then the, the picture becomes a little bit clearer in our head. So when this guy's message of just say the word got to Jesus, um, Jesus starts taking that opportunity to teach. Well, let's first see how Jesus, how Luke records Jesus' reaction. Because I really want you guys to hear this, and I really want us to, to understand um, what we're reading and how we have to read into this a little bit and how we, have to, how we go about understanding this. So in Luke 7, the first part of, of verse 9, it says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. Uh, this is the NASB 95 version. Marveled is really the only acceptable translation here of the Greek word we're talking about. Uh, we, we simply cannot use the words um, surprised. We can't use the words shocked. Or we can't even use the word amazed at something like this. Surprised, shocked, amazed. Those words, stay with me for the English lesson for a second here. Those words are adjectives. They describe something. But first of all, the Bible tells us some things about surprising God and the fact that we cannot surprise God. Look at Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before I speak, you already know what I will say. There's nothing that we can say that's going to surprise God. There's nothing we can think that's going to surprise God. God already knows it. Think about that for a second, by the way. God already knows your thoughts and he knows your words before you say them, so... Sam. What we're translating here is a verb from the Greek, that word marveled. Can you pop up 7-9-A again, Jared? We're translating a verb here. It's something that Jesus is doing. Not something that he's reacting to. Not something that happens to him. Those other words, like I said, are, are, are adjectives that describe one's reaction. The reaction... Our, our reactions, uh, stay with me for a second, our reactions are passive verbs. They're, thing, they're things that happen to us. This word, word marveled is an active verb, something that Jesus is doing. I think it's, and to stay in the English lesson for a second here, you might have to look some of this up when you get home. Just kidding. I think it's the preposition that throws us off here because it says he marveled at him. The preposition at doesn't actually belong in this, in this translation because it's not part of the Greek language. It's not part of the Greek phrase. So if we changed that preposition from at and changed it to, some, to the word about, he marveled about him. It takes that surprise factor out of Jesus, not reaction, but the way then he proceeds, the way he reacts to it. So then how does Jesus, does Jesus excuse me, <clears throat> marvel about him? Like I said a second ago, Jesus takes this opportunity to teach. He takes the opportunity to use this guy as an example for us. So the second half of verse 9, it says, He turned around, Jesus turned around and said to the crowd following him, Jesus, He said, I tell you, I have never found faith like this, not even in Israel. What kind of faith are we talking about here? This guy, the centurion, said, you don't even need to be there. All you got to do is speak the word, and I know whatever it is that is going to obey you, I know it's going to obey you. You have power and authority over everything, over disease, over death, over everything. So whatever it is that's going to happen, I know it's going to happen if you just, what? Say the word. 
Now, before we dig a little deeper and understand how to apply this lesson to our lives, I want you to hear and I want you to understand how this whole story ended. Verse 10 says, Then those who had been sent by the centurion, remember the scene now, First, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus. They meet him as he's going to Capernaum. says, we want you to go to this centurion's home and heal his sick slave, right? Jesus says, excuse me, Jesus says, let's go. Before they get there, the crowd, the, his friends, the centurion's friends come and say, this, that's close enough. Don't, we're not, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Very humbly, right? And then Jesus says, okay, I've never seen faith like this. So now in verse 10 it says, Then those who had been sent by the centurion returned to the house and found the slave perfectly well. Okay, now, um, Jared, could you please go back to 9b? Jesus turned around and said to the crowd following him, I tell you, I have never found faith like this, not even in Israel. Right? Verse 10 now, Then those who had been sent by the centurion returned to the house and found the slave perfectly well. Okay. Did you notice what happened here? Or maybe what didn't happen here? The centurion said, just say the word. And unless I missed it, Jesus didn't say the word. Jesus has power and authority that we don't understand. That power of Jesus goes way beyond anything we have seen or can imagine. But just like everything else, there's two sides at work here. The Jewish elders think that Jesus owes this guy a solid for the things that he's done, right? Jesus, you owe this guy a favor or two. This this guy, they actually use the word deserves what he's asking for. The centurion says things like, I'm not worthy even to talk to you. I'm going to send people to talk to you. I'm, I'm not worthy, and I'm sure not worthy for you to come to my place. He also says, I recognize your power and authority, and I recognize power and authority when I know it and I see it. Jesus replies, I have never seen faith like this before. I've never seen faith like this before. That Greek word for marveled is thromazo. We see that word used one other time. And it's the other side of the story. Jesus was in Nazareth. I said we're going to get back there in a second. This is the last time he was in Nazareth, or the last time we have it recorded anyway. His own people, uh, now there was one time when they tried to throw him off a cliff. This is the second time he goes there and he tries to uh, kind of make amends. He tries to heal some people and he tries to help them. But their unbelief keeps him out of there, basically. And in Mark 6, verse 6, it says, He marveled because of their unbelief. And he talked about it. So what are we looking at here, and how do we circle this back into our lessons during this Lenten season? Lenten season is for new growth in our relationship with our Creator. The Lenten season is for new growth in our Creator, in our relationship with our Creator. I said before, there's two sides to this story. There's belief and there's unbelief. Belief with the right attitude, with humbleness of heart. Now coming from the standpoint, not coming from the standpoint that God owes us or that we deserve, we've earned anything. But here's the real deal. If this Roman, this this Gentile, this soldier, if this guy 
can figure this out with just a grain of spiritual instruction, how much stronger, how much greater should our faith be? Because we might not realize it, but we have the whole counsel of God right here in our hands. It's complete. That's why I say we have to be able to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament for starters and then everything in between. Whole counsel of God in our hands. We've got 2,000 years of church history to look back on and learn from. This centurion guy figured it out with a grain of an idea, of a knowledge. This Roman can't stand these Jewish people, but he's different. This Gentile, separated from him, but he's different. He's a soldier, but he's different. He figures it out. I know power and I know authority when I see it. So instead of being like those Jewish leaders, assuming and arrogantly thinking that we've got it all figured out, heard, heard it, been there, done that kind of idea, why don't we start embracing it again? Why don't we let God's words grow our relationship with him and take this Lenten season to do that? We arrogantly think we have it all figured out. So we might actually be part of some of these other verses like Mark 4.40. Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still lack faith? Matthew 14.31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took a hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? I'm here for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So to sum it up, what's this Lenten season all about? We should be praying this Lenten season just as the apostles did and say this in Luke 17.5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Amen? Let's stand, please.